All right, let me ask you a question. We've got two choices here. eBay. I don't know what that's doing up there. Okay. It's on my computer, but why it's showing, I don't know. Um, we can either continue our discussion of translations or we can stop and switch over to the topic of hermeneutics. What I have that we didn't go through is about five slides that compare five major translations so you can see the differences between them. Do you want to do that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's do it. Okay, Isaiah 51.12. Now you can read these as I put them up. Here's the New King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, the Net Bible, and the New Living Testament. Okay? Now look through those quickly and you'll notice that the main place where they vary is at the end of the line. Okay? The New King James says, of a man who will be made like grass. The New American Standard says, of a man who is made like grass. NIV says, the sons of men who are but grass. The NET says, of mere human beings who are as short-lived as grass. And the NLT says, mere humans who wither like grass and disappear. Now, the more literal translations are at the top. Did you notice that there's a whole lot of stuff added down here? Okay. Now, what the NET and the NLT have done is that they have told you what they think the significance of the comparison is. When it says, you are like grass, these guys up here don't tell you what that means. They leave that up to you to discuss it. The NET says, who are as short-lived as grass. Well, the Hebrew text doesn't have the word short-lived there. They're just not there. Okay? Now, what's disturbing to me is that they didn't put italics in here. In most Bibles, when they add words that aren't there for clarification, they put it in italics. And that's very helpful. And sometimes those clarifications help you a lot, okay? But they didn't do that here. Down here, who wither like the grass and disappear. The Hebrew text doesn't say anything about withering or disappearing, okay? Now, do we have a doctrinal problem here? No, we don't, okay? But if you're going to do Bible study in an English Bible and you want to be as close to the words of the original text then you may not want to be down here with a translation that's doing more interpretation and paraphrasing. Okay? All right, there are interpretive additions there. 1 Corinthians 3.1. New King James, New American Standard, NIV, Net, and New Living Translation. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. Notice this is in italics telling you that they added that, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, none of us use that word carnal in our normal language. New American Standard. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. Notice they didn't italicize that. Okay, but it's not a problem. It's obvious he's talking about people. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, this word carnal means of flesh. Okay? That's two different translations, both of which are equivalent. How many of you speak Spanish? 
You know what carne is, right? Yep. It's meat. Okay. Well, that's where carnal, uh, you know, carnal and carne are obviously related. Okay. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Oh, baby. That is really interpretive. Okay? You don't see why that's interpretive? No, it's not what it is. Carnal does not mean worldly. Now, it may be true that carnal people have one of their characteristics as being worldly. But see... This, the word that's used here, okay, has to do with still living very much under the influence of your old nature, whatever it is that this sarx thing is in Greek. So to call it worldly, what the NIV translators have done is they have restricted the meaning of this word in a way that's probably not completely correct. Yeah. Oops. Okay. The Net Bible. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, see, this one in this case is very literal. Okay? New Living Translation. Brothers and sisters, with you, I couldn't, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. What the heck are they doing? They threw out an entire phrase. Okay? If you have a New Living Translation, it's not a translation, folks. It is, not, In my opinion, it's not a Bible. Okay? If you want to read it, you can read it. You can use it for rapid reading or for devotions, but don't ever study the New, Te- New Living Translation translation and think that you're studying the Word of God. It isn't. I know I'll get in trouble for saying that, but I say a lot of things I get in trouble for. Okay. 2 Timothy 2.15 New King James New American Standard NIV NET and NLT Okay. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be shamed rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a very archaic translation. We think that means chopping up, but in King James English, that means handling it. Okay? New American Standard, accurately handling the word of truth. It expresses the same thing as this, although this is archaic. But because this is archaic, it's possible that you're going to misunderstand it. Okay? That's a weakness of the New King James. It keeps some archaic language. Okay? New American Standard. Who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I like it. Very similar to the ones above. How about NET? Teaching the message of truth accurately. Well, handling and teaching are not necessarily the same thing, are they? Now, ideally... Correctly handling it is going to involve correctly teaching it, but what have they done? Again, they've restricted this idea more than the real text says to to restrict it, right? Handling the word of truth, to me, that's going to include your own Bible study, right? 
You got to study it yourself before you teach it to somebody else. Okay? Down here, who does not need to be shamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Again, I don't like that because they've restricted it. Okay? Explaining and teaching, they're pretty similar. Obviously, we do want to correctly explain and teach it, but I think these guys have gone too far. Okay? They've taken out of your hands an opportunity to see what's being stated in the text in its fullest sense. Okay. Matthew 5.32. Let me get them all up there. Okay. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality. This is primarily where they're going to vary. Except sexual immorality, New American Standard says, except for reason of unchastity. That's kind of funny. That's a much more archaic word than sexual immorality, isn't it? Sometimes the New American Standard can be archaic. Okay? NIV, except for marital unfaithfulness. That is absolutely not what it says. Okay? It doesn't say marital unfaithfulness because marital, marital unfaithfulness is what? It's adultery. But adultery and this word are not the same word. Okay? This word, unchastity, is porneia. This word, adultery, is moikuo. They're all based on the same text. Yes, that's a good question. Thank you. Okay? Um... N-E-T, except for immorality, okay? That's basically the same thing. N-L-T, unless she has been unfaithful, okay? This one is a lot like this one, okay? Now, if you were to do a serious study of this passage, you would discover that the difference between this word adultery and that word uh, sexual immorality up here is extraordinarily significant in understanding this passage. And if you were studying it in the NIV, you'd get it wrong. Okay? What the NIV says is wrong. The biblical text doesn't say marital unfaithfulness. It says sexual immorality. Now, marital unfaithfulness falls into the category of sexual immorality, doesn't it? It's a subset. But sexual immorality is a lot bigger than marital unfaithfulness, right? If you're not married, you can be sexually immoral, and it's not marital unfaithfulness. Do you see it? Okay. 1 Timothy 2.15. We've been over this one before, right? Lori and I talked about this this week. Um, the big difference is she, women, women, she, women. Okay? The Greek text is singular here and plural there. It is she, they. It is not they, they. It is not they, they. Now, the NIT, she, she. This is wrong, too. Okay? And, and we're not talking about textual variance here. 
these guys decided to smooth the translation by making the number of these pronouns match. And it doesn't match. Okay? Uh, women, they. Plural, plural. All right? The only one that got it right here is the New King James. And that's surprising to me. Okay? I like the New King James, but I was very surprised that the NASB did this. Okay? Though, you know, when I say, if, if somebody asks me about this and I say it's a bad translation, I'm not saying that the NASB or the NET is a bad translation. The whole Bible, I'm saying that their translation of that particular verse is bad. Okay? Please understand that when somebody says to me in class, well, how do you explain it? I say it's a bad translation. I'm not saying burn your Bible. I'm saying that in that particular verse, I don't like the way the translators did it. Okay? Now, uh, I don't know. Do I have any more? I think I've got one more. Okay. I love this one. Okay. For it is better to marry than to burn. See the italics? With passion. Okay? The italics tell you that the translators added something to help you, but it's not inspired. And you have the option to forget that. Okay? King James Version, it's better to marry than to burn. New American Standard, burn with passion. NIV, burn with passion. NAT, burn with sexual desire. NLT, burn with lust. Now, New American Standard gave you italics. The NIV didn't, the NET didn't, the NLT didn't. You should be aware that there was a time in church history when this verse, plus the passage that we just looked at, 1 Timothy 2.15, where it says, but she will be, cha will be saved through childbearing, they argued that if a woman didn't get married, she was in danger of going to hell. Okay? The verb here is burn. You know, it's what happens when you strike a match. Now, in context, if you read the verse in context, it's obvious that it's talking about sexual passion. It's saying it's better to be married than to be miserable because you have that strong urge to have a mate. Okay? But, again, I like the translations that tell you when they're doing something to help you. It clues you in so that you know that's not inspired. It's the judgment of an intelligent translator saying, I think you better look at this. But it doesn't take that out of your hands and leave you thinking that's what the text actually says. Okay, some useful guidelines. I think it's good for us all to own a good dynamic equivalence translation and a good word-for-word tr translation. I use the New American Standard, the New King James, and the NIV. Okay? They do have their uses, all of them. When you're doing in-depth study, read your passage in several different translations and compare them. If you notice, if they're all in agreement, there's probably nothing particularly difficult there. If you see some significant dis disagreements, there might be a textual variant. They should tell you in the footnotes if there is. 
or there might be some tricky thing in translating. And knowing that there's something tricky there will clue you in that you might need to study a little harder to get it right. For Bible memorization and as your main Bible, I would urge you to use a word-for-word translation. Okay? If you're already committed to the NIV and that's what you've done all your Bible memorization in, I'm not saying unmemorize those verses. I've memorized a lot of stuff in the NIV before I switched. But I really think you're better off with a word-for-word translation. Okay. Do not use a paraphrase for Bible study. The Living Bible, the New New Living Translation, they are not real Bibles. Okay? It's just not where you should be doing your Bible study. Okay? I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, but... Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I don't. I honestly don't know much about the ESV, so I really can't comment on it. I need to find out, but I just don't know. Okay, that's that. Back to eBay. Okay. Any questions? It, it, it's kind of interesting today. I got an email from one of our friends in the Philippines and she sent me a link to a website that says the NIV is a satanic Bible. Okay? Now, I actually wrote her a two-page response about the NIV that's more, de- more detailed than what we talked about today. If any of you want to read it, send me an email and I'll email it to you. I think you'd find it helpful. Um, but I, I just don't want to go into that much detail right now on the NIV. Now, read through this comic. See if you can see why I put it up there. Can't read it? Okay, I'm sorry. Well, let, let me read the last one to you, okay? Silbert's dog crashes in Elbonia. And one of the Elbonians says, Look, Yergi, the Holy Scrolls say a dog will fall from the sky. And this guy says, They do? And he says, Actually, they say, Never shave your duck. But it's not literal. You have to interpret. (laughs) And he says, You mean I can shave my duck? (laughs) I just ran into that today, you know. Do you? Now you get it, right? See, Dilbert can be very theological at times. Okay. All right. What is it? We're going to talk about parables and allegories. Okay, what's a parable? Technically, a parable is an extended analogy in story form. Now, an analogy is just an implied comparison. When we say it's in story form, it's in the form of a story that's set in a kind of a setting that's what you'd be used to. Most of the parables in scripture deal with agricultural situations because those were people who lived in agricultural societies. One of the key characteristics of parables is that there's only one point or one idea illustrated. Okay, that's what parables do. Typically Jesus will say something and then he will illustrate it with a parable. 
um, most of the Bibles, I'm sorry, most of the parables in the Bible were told by Jesus. Okay? The Greek word that it comes from, parabolo, means to throw something alongside. A parable is, is a picture you throw alongside a concept to illustrate it by comparison. Most of the parables start with something is like. Like, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who. Now, that is like there tells you that there's a comparison. And when you're looking at parables, the key thing is to look for what's being compared. Now, what are parables for? Well, Jesus made a statement in Matthew 13. He said, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, I'm backing up here, but I did that for a reason. He says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given, for whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Okay? You ever wonder about this statement, which doesn't seem to make any sense? If you have, you'll get more. If you don't have, you'll lose what you've got. Okay? Well, if you read this in context, what you will discover is for whoever has ears to hear, to him more understanding will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have ears to hear, the understanding that he has will be taken away. Okay? He will be more in the dark. So, what Jesus is saying is that he used parables to reveal truth to to believers, okay, people who were spiritually responsive, and to conceal it from unbelievers, okay? The value of a parable, in other words, lies in the response of the hearer, okay? It, it's almost like a coded story that's aimed at the people who are in the in-group, if you want to think of it that way, Okay? All right, let's quickly look at some parables. I don't even think you need to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. What do you think the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches? Now remember, parables basically illustrate one idea. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was responding to a question. You remember what it was? Who is my neighbor? And then he tells the story. What does the story tell you? What's that? Yeah, it basically tells you that whomever you happen to encounter who is in need is your neighbor. Okay? That's what the parable tells you. The parable is not really telling you that it's your duty if you run into somebody on the side of the street to take him to a hotel and go to the local liquor store and pour a ripple on his wounds. That's what the guy does, right? Well, we don't pour ripple on wounds these days, do we? We have other means of dealing with injuries. Okay? The purpose of that parable is to tell you who your neighbor is. Okay. How about the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12? You can take a look at that. If, if you don't remember it, what it is off the top of your head, turn there and take a look at that. And then just raise your hand when you have an idea of what that parable is teaching. Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. 
up with God. Um, I think that's part of what it says. Going back to what Don says, Don noticed the context, right? The context was a discussion of covetousness. So putting those two together, you might say that the parable expresses this idea. You're a fool if you live your life for possessions because you don't know when your time is going to be up. Okay? So you can put that together. Now, you can all see that, right? It's not difficult to interpret parables, is it? It's usually pretty easy, particularly because a parable is always given to you to illustrate an idea that's all already on the table. If you can find the idea that's already on the table, and that's what Don did. Don looked at the context before. He saw the discussion of covetousness. Do you see it there? If you can find that idea and then read the parable and try to see how the parable illustrates that idea, then you're going to see what's going on. Okay? Okay, the two of you did great on that. All right, let's go on. The hidden treasure, Matthew 13, 44. This is a nice short one. trickier, maybe. What do you think the parable of the hidden treasure <coughs> is expressing? It may be unfair of me to ask you to interpret this one without being able to spend more time with the concept. Mary. Did you hear that? The kingdom is worth anything and everything. Okay? I think that's what it's expressing. Okay? And if you looked at the at the parable that follows it, you'll see that that one says the same thing. Right? <clears throat> Just in a slightly different way. It's interesting that Jesus used an agricultural metaphor and a metaphor from life by the ocean. Okay? And both of those were current among the people that he lived with, right? Okay, next one. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You probably all know this one very well. Now, this is a pretty long parable. Take a look at that and see if you want to take a stab at what that is expressing.
need, it expresses the need to use wisely that which is given to you by the master. It's about stewardship, right? Now, you could probably go a little farther. You could probably say that the master rewards his servants for their stewardship, not based on their capability, but their faithfulness. And I would get that by looking at the fact that he gives five talents to one guy, and when he earns five more, he's happy. He gives, what is it, three or two to another guy, and when he earns two more, he's happy with that, too. He doesn't say that the guy who got five is better than the guy who got two. He says the same thing to both of them. Because each one of them lived up to the responsibility that was entrusted to them. And then there's the third guy who doesn't do anything. Okay? But Greg, you hit it right on the head. Okay? God expects us to be good stewards of what he entrusts to us. And, you know, I think we could generalize that in a lot of ways. Spiritual gifts, money talent, relationships, um, your, what's that? Time. Time. Sure. Sure. Your family, um, your privileges and responsibilities as a citizen of whatever country you live under. Okay. Things like that. You know, a believer who doesn't vote, I think is wasting a stewardship that God put in his hands. Things like that. Okay. Some keys for interpreting parables. Look for the story's natural meaning. That, that basically means just read it. Okay, see what it's talking about. Secondly, try to discern what prompted the telling of the parable. Now, you guys have done that quite naturally. Look in the context for the concept that the person who tells the parable is trying to illustrate. Okay, discover what the parable illustrates. Then validate what you think the parable is teaching. Okay? Once you have a hypothesis, go back and compare it to the context. And if you come up with a hypothesis that is theologically difficult, you probably did something wrong. Okay? It, there's also value in noting how the hearers respond if the scripture records their response. Okay, now... In the interest of time, I'm going to skip over the discussion of allegories because there are a couple of things that I want you to try out. And our time is short. We may do that, the allegories, next week. Okay. Your Christian friend says that the Song of Solomon is an allegory describing the love of Christ for the church. Now, I haven't talked about allegories, but I'm still going to ask you this question. Do you agree... Why or why not? Okay? We have a no. Before you tell me why. Does anybody have the opposite opinion? Clayton? Yes, I think it does. You th okay, you think it's an allegory describing the love for the church. Okay, I'm going to let you two, uh, I'm not going to let you duke it out, but I, I'd, like to hear your, <laughs> I'd like to hear your reasons. Okay. It gets kind of hot and steamy, doesn't it?
but the evidence is adding up against you. I'm sorry. Now, now you get your shot. Well, I mean, I, I even said something in, in the, the fellowship meeting on, on Sunday about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that, you know, God, why did God make man and woman? Why did he make Christ in the church analogy? analogy? Why did he make the sexual relationship between a man and a woman and then relate that to Christ and his church and the way that okay. that's supposed to work? I don't and he does, he does that in Ephesians, right? For example, he says yeah. that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Yeah, I do agree that you know Solomon does get into... Uh, you know, explicit details of, mm-hmm. of that, but that's part of it. Um, I think that's part of a relationship between a man and his wife, and that's just, I think that's the analogy that God gives us between a man and a woman. Okay, now, I'm going to take you in a second, Don. Um, let me, you know, we didn't talk about allegories. I skipped over that, and in some sense, that makes this an unfair question. Um, the question that arises is whether it's wiser to understand Song of Solomon as describing a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife and then allowing the New Testament to build on that understanding in illustrating the relationship of Christ to the church or should we say that Song of Solomon is an allegory about Christ and the church. And the basic rule regarding uh, allegorical interpretation of the Bible is if you're not forced into allegory, you're much better off not doing it. Okay. Now, I, I think we can build a very strong case that Song of Solomon is not an allegory. And in this case, I have to disagree with you. But you have a lot of church history behind you. Okay, you're not the only one who thinks that. Don? Are there any quotes from the New Testament of Song of Solomon? I cannot think of any. No, no it's not quoted in the New Testament. Craig? Well, I think in Ephesians he's making a generalized comment to, uh, he uses that in an allegorical sense. Well, it, it's not an allegory, it's a, it's, it's a comparison. It's a comparison, yeah. Sure. To, to denote the of Jesus over the church, the purity of the church, its relationship to Jesus, general protection, right. provision. Well, you know, all those generalized things that you think about is between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, and a marriage, but not the specifics that you would see in uh, Yeah, yeah. Let's leave that there, okay? Let's go on to the next one, okay? This one is more fun. Your Christian friend is owed money by another believer. The debtor won't pay up. Your friend cites Matthew 18:23 to 34 as justification for hiring thugs to beat the debtor up until he pays. What do you think? Go ahead and look it up. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Let's have somebody who hasn't spoken up. 
end of. Okay. All right. Tell me more. You, you've al- you've already you've hit the nail on the head. Okay. First of all, you said that this is what. Well, no, that the, the thing we're looking at is a, the text is a parable. Right. Okay. And a parable is there to illustrate a particular concept. Yes. All right. And you said that concept is? Mercy. All right. What does the parable tell you about mercy? Okay. You can put it that way, or you can put it in a positive sense. Those who have been shown mercy should show it to others. Okay? Or compassion. You know, you can call it mercy, you can call it compassion, you can call it forgiveness. Um, All those things are in there, right? Now, do you see what she did? She recognized that this is a parable. Okay? A parable is an illustration. A parable is not a set of instructions. Okay? How about the parable of the unjust steward? The guy who hears his boss is going to fire him, so he quickly embezzles some money from his boss, and the boss finds out and he says, Boy, you're a sharp guy. Therefore, those of us who are involved in accounting should embezzle because the Bible says embezzlers are smart. Right? I don't think so. Okay. Third one. A preacher says that what Luke 16, 19 to 31 teaches about life after death should not be taken literally because Luke 16, 19 to 31 is a parable. Do you agree? Why or why not? Take a look at Luke 16, 19 through 31. It's a story because it has the names of the people. Okay. Mary says that it's a story because it has names of the people. Okay. I like that. Um, so you're saying it's not a parable? Okay. I happen to agree with that. I don't think it's a parable. Remember what the qualities of parables are? Leah, you started to say something. Okay, good. There's a comparison. Now, if you look in the context, I'm not sure we can find something that's being compared or illustrated. What else do we know about what parables generally are like? Okay, good. This is very important. Parables have an ordinary, everyday life setting. Now, how many of us have been to hell? The setting of this story is very unusual, is it not? In fact, if this story is a parable, it's based on a set of circumstances that no one has ever seen. On the other hand, if the story is actually a true story it reveals to us something that you can't find out about anywhere else in Scripture. And that is, what does an unsaved person think about being in hell? Okay? There's a name. Lazarus is given a name. Okay? We have an unusual setting. There's no particular evidence that something is being illustrated. 
I don't think this is a parable. Personally, I think this is a true story. It's my personal suspicion that the people to whom Jesus was speaking knew that rich man and they knew Lazarus. And in the process of telling that story, he gives us a glimpse of the other side that we couldn't get anywhere else that is extraordinarily valuable to us. So, I would disagree. Okay, I think that what that story tells us about life after death is true, that it's an intentional revelation from God and that the story is not a parable. Okay? Now, th- think about what you just did. Okay? Remember we've talked about the importance of genre in interpreting Scripture? You need to pay attention to what the genre is of the portion of text that you're looking at. Our understanding of parables is that parables are not true stories. They're true to life. Okay? They describe situations that could happen, but they're not true stories. Okay? Did some guy buy a field and he was digging and he found a treasure and he goes and gets all of his money and buys the field? I don't think that happened. Jesus made it up. It's not a lie. It's an illustration. Okay? This story is not a parable. Since it's not a parable, we say, well, there's no reason to think that this is a fictitious story. So we treat it slightly differently. Can you see what's going on? You know, or the Proverbs. You know, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he's going, he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, I did my best to raise Andrew, and he's still a bum. <laughs> I've used this on him before. I think I used it on him before in this class. Okay? All right? It's not valid because the genre of a proverb is not a guaranteed promise. Right? Okay, so you, you know, these are some illustrations of how genre works. Anybody have any questions before we quit? Okay, next week is our last class in Theology 1 and Hermeneutics. The week after that, we will start, I think, Theology 2 and Theology 4. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given us tonight. Thank you for the joy of exploring your word together. Thank you, Father, that because you have given us the indwelling spirit, you have provided us with a vital, absolutely indispensable resource for interpreting and applying your word. Grant that we would use our Bibles wisely that we would study them diligently with prayer and with reliance on your spirit. Grant that we would be willing not just to understand but also to apply what we see. Please give us your protection as we go home. Grant grant us peaceful rest and strength for the new day tomorrow. Let us walk with you until we meet again. We pray this in Christ's name.